Welcome inside the Paris Sea Palace High above 3733's Broadway. This is the Jake Feinberg Show, Comedy Alive on Power Talk. Please go to our website, powertalk.live, download our free app, and stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast, the Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, the Jake Feinberg Show. And we can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today, and it's a high honor for me to bring on a cat who has really just a virtuosic guitar player, but uh, by all accounts, uh, by reading his uh, his posts as we are connected on new media, um, you know, he has seen the day when you could be on the bandstand six or seven nights a week and really ultimately get comfortable developing your own sound, trust, and camaraderie within the band to the point now where I saw him post a few, a few months ago, uh, you know, maybe it's time to leave the United States if there's just not enough work in this country. Barry Finnerty, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Well, thanks, Jake. Thanks for having me. Can you talk a little bit about uh, where, what, how you the sea change as it relates, especially for my generation? I was born in in seventy eight, and uh, from where you started and the kind of opportunities you had on the bandstand, even if it was you know five bucks, a, twelve bucks a week, compared to where you are today in terms of live performances. Yeah, well, it was a little more than 12 bucks a week, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. might have been 12 bucks a week back in the 20s. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, w- I was born in 51, so, you know, I, I came up in San Francisco during the 60s, and, uh, you know, in the rock and roll scene. And, uh, and you know, I mean, uh, my, 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 high, my high school band, the band that was in, in high school, just after we played the Fillmore and the Avalon and those kind of places. And I moved to New York in 73, and... Uh, well, the main the main difference was it was just so much cheaper back then. I mean, it was so much easier to live, you know. I mean, my first apartment in New York in 1973 cost me 160 a month, I think. Exactly. And then I, and then I, moved, to, then I moved to a place that was like 320, 335 for two people. Uh, me and me and me and Mike Wolf, actually, a piano player that uh, played with uh, Nancy Wilson. And Get was, uh, out of here! You and you and Wolf, you and Wolf were, were roommates. We were roommates. We were friends in Berkeley. I met him when we were like 16 playing with the UC Berkeley stage band. We were oh. both from you know, the Bay Area. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I got in the gig with Ayrton and Flora in 1974. But anyway, that, I mean, <laughs> you know, back then, uh, if you're, then your typical jazz gig, I mean, there were, there were clubs that were open that would be like a Tuesday to Sunday or a Wednesday to Sunday kind of thing. 
you know, be a five or six day gig. And, uh, you know, the places would do business, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, it's never been that easy a road to road to, to take to be a professional musician, particularly a professional jazz musician, you know, but, uh, you know, but, but, uh, you know, uh, it's just, I mean, it's, it's gotten, I mean, there's, there's, there's not that many opportunities anymore to, to, for, uh, just to play, really. You know, you know what it uh, is? This is the better question. We don't... We don't uh, how did it help you acquire trust with your bandmates? I mean, we just came in listening to that track with Chester Thompson and Ronnie, Ronnie Beck. And, you know, but I, I mean, when you, when, you had the opportun- when you had the opportunity to play six nights a week on the bandstand with you. Can you just talk about how the trust amongst your bandmates grew? Uh, trust, interesting. Well, you know, I mean, if you're playing with professionals, you got to trust them, you know, to do the right thing. I mean, you know, it's, uh, you know, I mean, you, you, you get guys that, uh, you get guys that are the biggest guys who can deliver what they want, and you just have to trust each other to deliver a good job. And then you're not getting what you want, then you hire somebody else, I guess. I mean, uh, it's another thing to develop a real organic band, you know, where you're, where you're, where you're like, you know, really part of a, you know, an ongoing thing, and you play together all the time to the point where you don't even have to use music anymore. And there's a communication between the players and so forth. You know, a lot of times it's more of a professional thing where you, uh, where you know, you're reading charts and you're playing somebody's music, if not your own. You know, I mean, but personally speaking for myself. When I'm hiring guys, I hire guys that I trust, that I know they're going to lay down the right thing that I want to hear. You know, if I'm not getting what I want to hear, then I'll get somebody else. You know, I don't want to have to be able to, you know, give, I don't want to have to uh, need to give them too much direction. I just want guys that, 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 you know, intuitively know, you know, what the right thing is to play for a particular tune or group or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I totally dig. I mean, I, I guess what I was talking about is the, well, going back for a minute, uh, can you talk, I mean, did you, did you play the the Fillmore prior to Bill Graham uh, getting the job? I think he all, he always had the job. I mean, he owned he owned the place from like the, the first time I went there. He was he had the old Fillmore on Cherry Street. Right, because uh, of the, the back but, the story there is that uh, Charles Sullivan was 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 uh, murdered. It was a mob hit, and um, he was found with because tw- he owned all the all the film all the the black clubs in the Fillmore and. That whole Chitlin circuit, and really? and and he was found dead in his car. The next thing you know, Bill Graham came in. But anyway, so you can you talk a little bit about because you know, like I mean, I've talked to your generation. I've talked to so many cats, and you know, especially cats like Pat Martino, who you'd go from the you know he'd walk in and uh, to the to the restroom during the set break, and you know this tight this person that we all considered a titan. He didn't name the person, but you know this horn player would take out there take out their 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 teeth at intermission you know i mean these guys were blue their teeth yeah i mean the point is that these these guys were living a serious life of the blues and and the spirit and the spirituals and 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 you even though you came up during quote unquote rock and roll i want you to talk about the authenticity of the blues cats that had an impression on you in terms of they were truly channeling their life it wasn't they weren't necessarily they couldn't even read music in some cases in some cases they didn't have real teeth but they burned their life story on the band right. and i just want you to talk about that authenticity and how it impacted you 
Well, for sure. You know, I mean, I, mean, I, I was one of the, the uh, generations of, 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 of white American kids, I guess you'd say, that, that uh, you know, I had to be turned on to the blues by the English guys. I mean, when I, when I became a fan of uh, Jeff Beck, say, for instance, who was one of my first guitar heroes of the Rolling Stones, you know, they, 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 the magazines would ask them, who do you listen to? And they'd say, well, we listen to that guys like uh, Muddy Guy and, uh, and uh, Muddy Waters and B.B. Uh, King. Freddie King, you know, Eric Clapton's Blues Breakers record. They did some Freddie King stuff, but Hideaway was on there. So I got turned on to it sort of from that from that angle. Um, but, uh, you know, but I mean, when you talk about the blues, you're just talking about, you know, you're not talking about necessarily, uh, you know, music theory. You're talking about a feeling of, of playing and, and a style of playing that's, uh, you know, that's really uh, fundamental to, uh, to all kinds of American music, especially I mean, mostly including jazz, but it all comes from the blues, you know. But uh, I remember, I can tell you one story. When I was about 16, I guess, maybe 15, I was taking guitar lessons at, uh, at this place downtown San Francisco called Sherman Clay, and Albert King came in there, and he wanted to get his guitar fixed. And, uh, and they didn't do guitar repair at Sherman Clay, but I said, hey, I, I, know, I, know the, uh, I know the place that does guitar repair. I'll, I'll, show, you that. I'll show you the way to get there. And so he took me outside, and he had a station wagon with Albert King, Born Under a Bad Sign, <laughs> a on the, door, the, doors, the doors on both sides. And, uh, and he, he drove me over there. It was like five or six blocks. And he was talking the whole time, but he had such a big southern accent, man. I, I didn't understand hardly a word he said. He was like, well, I, I hardly understood a thing he said. I said, right over here. Well, so right over here, okay, I got it, I got it. You know, and then we got to the music store. And uh, you know they had a bunch of guitars, so I took so I took a couple. Of, I took a guitar down and I played a few licks for him. And he was like, "Oh, you sound pretty good, son. Sound pretty good." And then and then like two or three years later, he was playing the Fillmore, and uh, and he was like standing at the bar upstairs. I just happened to be up there, and I, I, I went up to him and said, "Hey, you remember me, hey, Albert? Do you remember me?" He goes, "Oh yeah, you showed me the way to the guitar store." Wow. Three years later, he wow. remembered for the white kid, you know. And I heard he couldn't read. Albert King couldn't read, but he could count. <laughs> you know, it, talking to Barry, but, uh, talking to Barry Finnerty here on the on the Jake Feinberg show. You know, um, Sherman and Clay. I, I mean, this goes back to my. You know, I've done thousands of interviews. Uh, Paul Jackson used to sell organs there. He's, yeah, they were a big keyboard store. They had Hammonds, Hammonds, and Steinways, and everything. But they had they had a section where they did guitar lessons. I also took organ lessons from Tommy Coster, who played with Santana. Oh, I've interviewed I've interviewed Tommy several times. What a beautiful! So you took, explain yeah. how you took organ lessons from Tommy Coster. Yeah, I did. I did. I because mean, he I was, was playing. Yeah, well, go ahead. I mean, explain how you guys because he was playing um, something called I don't know. He took over for Buddy Montgomery at some strip club going back. But I'm just curious how you guys actually wound up connecting originally. I, I think I met him at the at Truman and Clay, but uh, you know, I, I was a keyboard player before. I played piano before I played guitar. I started when I was five, and so I had I had some chops, and I just wanted to learn keyboard harmony. So he showed me a lot of stuff. You know, I didn't take that many lessons to him, maybe ten or fifteen lessons. But but uh, yeah, you know, I did learn a bit from him back then. You know, you know the you know the thing uh, about it is that. Uh uh, I wanted the other thing is that I want to be clear. Were you involved? You know the engineer Jim Stern uh, from Fantasy. Uh, he was in. He, yeah, I, I, 
he, he, I think I might have worked with him once, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, the point is that he told me this story about a band called, um, I think it was called Hoffman's Bicycle. Al- Albert Hoffman fell off his bike, and then this band, Dan Healy was on bass, and and they were playing at the uh, Matrix, not, maybe not the Matrix, but the Carousel Ballroom, uh, and your name came up. I mean, you were in that band, or one of the, can you talk about your experience intermeshing prior to I, I don't, the, yeah. I, I don't. I don't remember. I don't remember them at all. Actually, I don't, I don't remember them. But you, uh, yeah. But I mean, the, the, to be clear, though, you were you grew up in the in the Bay Area, though. So you were the band. The first the first band I played with that had any notoriety was a band called Beefy Red, and we had a it was a band based in Moran, and a lot of guys came through that band. Like Jim Preston from the Sons of Champlin was the uh, was wow. the uh, drummer, and wow. Mark Mark Eichen, Mark Eichen played, played in the band for a while. Uh, uh, a fellow named uh, Jim Checkley, who was kind of a legendary guitar player. Uh, uh, who else? Uh, Terry Bozio was in the band for a brief minute. Uh, so it was—it was sort of, you know, we, we, it was—it was like eleven-piece band at one point. We had like, you know, uh, five five horns, six-piece rhythm section, and we, we we played the Fillmore and the Avalon a few times. You know, we never really—we were really popular in Marin, but but we kind of broke up before we could get anywhere. We didn't really have any original material. And I left. I left in '71 to go to the Berkeley School in Boston, and then I went to '73. I moved to New York. So the band might it might have it might have gotten bigger and bigger. You know, I could be sitting, uh, you know, in, in in a giant mansion in Marin County now. But I but it, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. Tell me the name of the band. How do you, what's the name of the band again? It was, it was called Beefy, called Beefy Red. Beefy Red. Beefy, Beefy, like is in the color of beef red. <laughs> Wow, uh, that's unbelievable. That, you know, because that I mean, and and that, that's the other part of it is that uh, you talk about Marin County at that time was completely different. In fact, Marin City, George Duke was over there. I mean, it was such a different vibe over there. Were you living on like a houseboat? Marin or? City was kind of, yeah. No, no, no. But but uh, I lived in the city at that time. But but uh, um, in the Richmond district. But uh, we used to rehearse. At the Sausalito Heliport, oh yeah, the Champlin had a place there. Uh, we had a place, and a couple other bands. Up there was a band called Freedom Highway. I think they were there. You know, just a bunch of old San Francisco bands. And it was fun. It was kind of a funky scene. You know, <laughs> uh, um, you were so. I mean, how old you were know? you? How old were you when you were at that? Because I mean, Bloomfield was down there. There were random like Ron Stallings, you know, Southern Comfort was down there. You know, yeah, like Ron Stallings. Sure. Yeah, well, yeah, like what? Like, about, we're talking about. Talking about like maybe I was about 16, 16 or so, seventeen. That's that age. Unbelievable! Yeah. Wow, that so you were sixty. Now I just want to be clear. Mike Wolf went to Berkeley High. Was he younger than you, or or did, I mean, because he used to go to these inter- international. He was like about he's maybe a half a year younger than me. But I, I, I got into I, I got into UC Berkeley uh, when I was seventeen, right out of high school. Like, I, they, they they were they were pushing people into the summer session, so. I went there in the summer of '69, and then uh, I started. I, you know, I, I tried. I, I went to uh, went out for the for the, their stage band. They had a they had a, a big band, a UC big band, that would rehearse once a week. And uh, and Mike Wolf was playing piano there when he was 16. I guess he was still in Berkeley High. Oh his last last year at Berkeley High. So that's how I met him. Yeah, because he he talked about going. When I interviewed Mike, he talked about going to Vegas for some competition, and and all all the cats and the. In the Berkeley band or in the high school band, were wearing like dashikis and banging on the tables with spoons and forks, and I, I think they got. They, I, I don't think they won because of that. You know, they were just too. But you know, 
You know, um, Barry, it, it's such a high honor to, to talk to you. I, you know, when I, I interviewed Buzzy Featon, um a couple weeks ago, maybe a month ago. Buzzy, you, Buzzy Featon? Yeah, Buzzy Featon. And um, he talked to me about a concept uh, as a non-musician. When I, when I see cats today playing younger generational cats, like, you know, maybe Gen Xers, Millennials, whatever, I oftentimes see tremendous facility and technique, and they can play styles. But like we talked about with the blues, there's kind of a lack of feeling and honestly sometimes i often wind up staring at the wall because i don't really know if those cats ever really came up of the of age and decided that they wanted to like the sound that was coming out of their instrument before they developed their chops and buzzy was talking about how he really worked on the sound that was coming out of his guitar so that he liked that sound before he went off on this sort of you know um uh, ability to to have tremendous facility and I wanted you to talk about how you developed your own sound how you got to, how you cultivated a sound that you ultimately liked and if you took the route of doing that before developing quote-unquote monster chops well you know I'm still I'm still trying to develop those monster chops <laughs> you're doing all right you know I mean the thing is to me, I, I could never just play fast for fast sake. I, I really have a hard time doing it. It's just that I, I have to be thinking something or, or, or having some kind of like a musical melodic idea in my head. And sometimes, you know, I, I do have, have some fast clips that I, that, I, that I throw in occasionally, but I'm really more into trying to create melody, you know, when, when improvising. But, um, you know, it's, it's just a gradual process, you know. You, you, st- you, keep, you keep adding to it, you know. I started off just learning basic, uh, you know, fix some, say, Rolling up the solo of the Rolling Stones or the guitar solo with Louis Louis, really old stuff, and then, and then, uh, you know, you just gradually just keep uh, keep adding adding to your vocabulary until you know it gets it gets so complicated that no one can understand it at all. <laughs> I mean, can but, you uh, could, could you give an example of how you you in any any part of your career how when you added vocabulary and and in a specific setting or a, a time when you were with a certain band. Well, you know, I, I mean, all the all the players that I admire, you know, I would try to to, uh, to get a little bit from each one. I mean, uh, some of my some of my biggest influences were like, I mean, in in, in say for just in the simpler style of playing, I would say uh, uh, like, you know, uh, Jeff Beck first, and then, then Eric Clapton, the Bluesbreaker stuff, and Cream stuff, and Ian Hendrix, of course, and uh, and 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 also BB King. I got turned on to BB King a little later, but but those 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 four. And then, and then I always, and then in jazz, I, I started listening. I, uh, somebody gave me a Howard Roberts record, like pretty early on. Oh wow! Was, uh, wow! Howard Roberts had a really nice, uh, you know, melodic and funky style of jazz guitar playing, but he also had great chops. And I got into him a little bit, and actually, me and my friend, uh, we went down to the very first guitar uh, guitar workshop that Howard Roberts gave. It was in 1969 in L.A. and. Uh, and uh, we learned a little bit there. And I, I, I got into uh, George Benson was a huge influence. In fact, I always say my, my two main influences would be Jeff Beck and George Benson, not necessarily in that order. Wow, that's I, really I, I interesting. George, that's George a- is like George is like you know fab, a fabulous jazz player, obviously, but he's also got some funk and he's got great time. And then then Jeff Beck has the other other the other aspect of you know like the, you know what do you want to call it? Just 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 majestic uh, you know soulful rock playing that I like. I dig. But, uh, 
Do, do you, you know, I mean, do, do, do you remember? I, I often wonder, uh, you know, uh, I love the cats that, uh, you know, Julian Priester, Billy Hart, these guys are all teaching in academia. Uh, I tip my cap to them. They're getting a paycheck. It's keeping them going. It's great. But I don't know how you're supposed to increase the vocabulary of music within academia. I know this was a workshop with Roberts, but I'm very into nonverbal learning and communication. Was there anything that he – could you talk about the nuance of anything you walked out of there that you learned that wasn't like – could you just talk a little bit about um, what you learned, how Howard – how Howard taught that class was he was he was he could you talk a little bit about the way he conveyed information to you guys the, the masters of the old school were not big talkers per se they just played it was more like it was more just I, I don't remember anything he said so much but I remember some stuff that he played you know what I mean you know what I'm saying yeah I don't remember you know I remember stuff that he played and I think I think you know everything that I've added over the years has been like as a result of just listening to certain players like like a you know say for say for example john coltrane i i i couldn't get his really heavy lifts but uh, but i got his uh you know i i, I copped a lot of his phrasing and his his, his kind of angular uh, uh, against the beat kind of playing and you know and then then, then piano players like chick korea mccoy tyner uh you know keith jarrett i used to grab a little bit of everything i could grab from those guys you know just even if it was just a few, a, a few phrases, you know. But uh, eventually, what you have to do is you have to get to the point where, where what's coming out of your fingers of your instrument is actually what you're actually hearing, you know. And it's, it takes a while for this two to mesh. For a long time, I was frustrated because I couldn't play the stuff I was hearing. And then, but then I had to work on getting myself to be able to hear the stuff I was playing. And after a while. The two mesh, you know. I just Start think you just that you were just you yeah you're just waxing poetic right there. That was the best line I've heard so far in our 22 minutes. That that was that was beautiful. Explain Thanks. how vexing was that for you? I mean, did you take that challenge on, or was it kind of? I mean, that you wanted to play what you were hearing and you couldn't do that. I mean, that is so. How did you how did you get better? Just bandstand experience or just being in your room working it out? Well, you know, I mean you have to expand your vocabulary. And I had my own way of doing that, which I eventually actually put into my two like books, which are they're called the Serious Jazz Books. I don't know if you've heard of them. There's a serious jazz practice book and they're 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 published by Share Music, which is a well regarded uh, jazz educational publisher. But anyway, um, you know, basically it's it's just a combination of Melodic patterns uh, through it through every interval. Yeah, hold keep hold on a second. My wife's trying to call. Oh, no you know, problem. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be right back. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, I'll be right back. Yeah, yeah. Talking to Barry Finnerty here. The cat's been all around this world. Uh, you know, started with high school psychedelic rock, R and B, rock and roll, and then uh, moved into uh, Berkeley College of Music and uh, Berkeley School of Music, and then uh, into New York in '73. Played with the Crusaders. Uh, continues to this day to play with cats like Chester Thompson. So he's got the ability to stretch over all types of different musical genres, and uh, it's been a long time coming. It's already been a pretty heavy week here on the Jake Feinberg Show to begin with, uh, have, having an opportunity. Jake, you there? Okay, we're back. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here, babe. Yep. You hear me? You hear me? Yeah, I got you now. Okay. Okay, so, uh, Let's so look, as no. I was saying. Yeah, um, go ahead. 
I mean, you know, you get the basic melodic uh, melodic uh, patterns that just say the basic intervals, thirds, fourths, fifths, sixths, under your fingers, and there's things you can do with them, and then you take them through uh, other scales, like the diminished whole tone, not minor, and, and, and so by practicing all these different p- patterns, then you, then you acquire a vocabulary that hopefully, you know, you can later use, but it's, once it's ingrained enough under your fingers that you can tell what it's supposed to sound like before you play it, you know, so you hear it in your head before you play it, then you can sort of figure it out. You know? Wow, wow. Uh, to figure the way to send your fingers in those directions. But, you know, jazz, it's, it's really about exploration, you know. It's, it's about playing what you don't know, and that's the hard part, to be flexible enough to play what you don't know, you know. But say, but, but say for example, if you're just playing the blues, and you're just playing like the pentatonic scale, or, or, the, or the, it has an extra couple of bent, bent notes to areas, and then, you know, like the flatter fifths and so forth, and the flat I mean, you know, it's pretty easy if you're restricting yourself to that 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 kind of a you know, small group, small size of melodic material. It's pretty easy to hear everything that's going to come out before you play it. You know, if it's just da 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 da, you know, da 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 da. It's pretty easy to, but but you know, when you get more involved to, you know, more complicated chord changes and scale patterns, then it's a little more difficult to, you know. To put it to to you know to master all that stuff, but you know if you keep working at it, you can do it. You know? I just you know the other long, thing. I mean, I think that it, no, I mean it's it's fascinating now because I have to believe that in 1971 you went to Berkeley. Um, that was uh, you. That, well, I just want to be clear: UC Berkeley or Berkeley College of Music. Uh, I went to UC Berkeley right out of high school. That was in '69, and then 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 I went to Berkeley School of Music in '71. So so the, I want to know if you could talk about. Um, I mean, I've talked to Miroslav Vitus, and he went in, and his bass teacher was like, you know, man, uh, there's not a whole lot I'm going to be able to to teach you at this point. Um, and they played a lot of games back and forth. Harvey Mason played a lot of games with Alan Dawson. Ultimately, Dawson was getting him gigs with Duke Ellington's big band. Uh, it didn't really... F- played, a lot of, played a lot of games like what? Like, like, like tennis, ping pong? <laughs> no, like, like, well, I mean, yeah. The, like, like, you know, Alan Dawson would play vibes and or Harvey would play vibes and Alan would play traps and they would just go and trade rhythms. Uh, I mean, it wasn't like you... Can you talk about your experience learning experience in Boston? Were you at the jazz workshop in Paul's Mall a lot? I mean, did, were you basically... Oh, yeah, I went there. I went there for sure. But in fact, the, 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 probably the first first or second week I got there, George Benson was playing down at the uh, at the, at the jazz workshop. Wow. And I went down, and I had never seen him live before, and he was like 10 times better than anything he'd ever had on record. He was ridiculous. He was so good. What stood out? That's really phenomenal. Went, yeah. And a- afterwards, I went to him and said, hey, hey George, I I just wanted to say, you know, I'm a guitar player. I just started going to Berkeley. I, I, and, uh, you know, I, I've, never heard, I've never heard anybody play so good. You know, you sounded great. And, and, and he goes, oh, yeah, you're a guitar player? Come on backstage and play my guitar. <laughs> that was the first thing he said. <laughs> and, and I went back and I played a few licks. And he goes, yeah, man, you sound pretty good. And, you know, we... We, uh, you know, we, he was always a, that's the kind of guy he was, just a real sweetheart. But, but anyway, uh, did, you, did you have, were you playing in the combat zone at all? Uh, that, that was like sort of the... Uh, I, 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 did a, I did a couple of gigs down in the combat zone. Like they, they had a lot of organ, organ trios down there. In just, trios. For the, just for the worldwide audience, the, uh, the combat zone was a, 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 a place in Boston with, which housed a lot of brothels and strip clubs, but it gave, 
it gave cats like Barry Finnerty a lot of a lot of gigs because you you do an hour set and then you'd have an hour off so you could go see somebody else play then you'd come back and do you did like three hour sets per per night. I mean, it was a really it provided a livelihood for musicians. Yeah, they they, they had several places, maybe five or six places each with an operating organ trio seven nights a week, which is pretty. I mean, that just doesn't happen anymore now. It's completely all just you know jukebox, you know, but. Uh, Berkeley, as far as being at, at, at Berkeley School in Boston, for me, it was the, the best thing about it was just being in a musical environment. I didn't, I can't remember really anything I learned from from any of the classes I took. They they gave me an evaluation on the first day I got there, and based on what they saw, they placed me with a guitar teacher who I could already play better than at the age of nineteen. You know, so then, so I I, I just took, I would just like try to corner guys and and. and Pick their brains for a little bit of knowledge. I mean, Mick, Mick Goodrick. Oh who was my a God! Badass, yeah, badass. And 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 I played and Charlie Mariano, who was there, that great saxophone player. He was he was leading a lot of the jazz, um, you know, jazz jazz combo workshops. And I played in some of his workshops, and that was fun, you know. Just you know, but just being in the musical environment was the best thing. I mean, I can't I can't remember one thing exactly that I learned while I was there. <laughs> no, no, the, it's not even know. about that. It's you know what it is like. Mariano is a perfect example. Like the guy did not come from academia. It, like he was. I mean, I guess that that's the other. I, I want to get Barry Finnerty's definition of uh, this is when I interviewed Chico Freeman. He talked about Dizzy Gillespie was being interviewed in Cuba about, and they said, "Well, what do you, what is jazz?" And he basically said that um, it is being able to honestly express yourself in the moment on the bandstand. And your peers on the bandstand are allowing you to completely express your true, honest self in that moment on the bandstand. And, you yeah. know, I just wanted you to talk about your definition of jazz and as it relates to improvisation, because we've become so stratified in music today. There was like you could walk into a record shop in, in Boston when you first got there and you'd find, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, Blackwood Brothers in, in the B section and then behind it would be Gary Bartz. There was no stratification uh, of uh, there was no the labels have stratified music so much. And so it wasn't as separated when you were coming up. And I just want you to talk about your definition of jazz and ultimately spontaneous improvisation, you know, not when the notes are not on the page. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you know, you know Louis Armstrong said when they, they asked to define jazz, he said, if you have to ask what it is, you'll never know. <laughs> I love it. But, uh, you know, I would say, you know, I mean, jazz has expanded a lot. I mean, there's all different kinds of jazz. So, I mean, uh, you know, I would say pretty much jazz is any kind of music where the improvisation is the prime focus, where the spontaneous creation of the actual individual players is, 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 is uh, the, the main featured thing. Um, Personally, I, 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 I mean, like, there's Brazilian jazz, there's, like, you know, there's country jazz, there's, you know, uh, there's straight-ahead jazz, there's fusion jazz, there's, you know, there's smooth jazz, which isn't even really jazz, but there's a lot of good players playing it. And, uh, um, you know, I mean, the, the exploration part is big, and, and, and spontaneity. The thing is, you have to get yourself into a place where your spontaneous uh, instincts are creating something that has actual musical value rather than just rather than just uh you know for uh 
for uh, to, to be to be showing off or whatever. You know, I mean, a lot of people they all they respond to is speed. They you know the faster somebody's playing, the better player he must be. And and, and people that know uh, what you know what music is about you know that that's you know not the case. That's right. You know, I mean, I mean. I, I have a, I have another little pearl of wisdom for you. It's Go like, ahead, uh, the, please. The, 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 the challenge to the improviser is to get permanence into his spontaneity. Oh, boy. The challenge oh to the boy. is to get spontaneity into his permanence. All right, one more, t- one, more, one, more t- one more, one more, yeah, one more time. With, say that yeah, one, one more time. time. One more time. Yeah. The, challenge, the challenge to the improviser is to get permanence into his spontaneity. The challenge to the composer is to get spontaneity into his permanence. And I might add, the challenge to the hairdresser is to get permanence into his permanence. <laughs> no, you're, that's so, I, I dig it completely, and it's so, <laughs> I mean, that's a very finity. We, we, can, we can copyright that. That's a trademark of yours. Yeah, you, 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 can, use, you can use that. But, but, um, but, you know, the thing is, I mean, when you're improvising, you want to improvise something that's going to have, that's going to bear repeated listening. You want to have something that's, that's not just like one, that's something that some musicians will go, wow, he's playing great, you know, you know, you want to have, you want to get something that people would want to listen to over and over again, like a classic solo, let's say, Miles is all blues, so you can listen to that solo, you know, a hundred times, and, and it, it always holds up, because it's so well, it's so well crafted, and there's not a whole lot of notes in it either, you know, but I mean, that's just one example. You know, and there's plenty of examples of, of stuff that's, uh, you know, more technical, more technically involved, like, say, uh, you know, some Chick Corea stuff, like, like his, his early piano trio stuff, Now He Sings, Now He Saw. That stuff you could listen to again and again, and it's wonderful. But, you know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that just doesn't have the depth or, uh, or spirituality or soulfulness or whatever you want to call it behind it, and that's the stuff that is weak, you know. And there's a whole lot of stuff in modern jazz these days it seems to have gone completely to the intellectual side, where it's all an intellectual exercise without any, you know, without any real emotional impact or without any real spiritual impact, to me personally, anyway. I find it hard to, to listen to a lot of it. But, I, com- I completely you know. agree. I mean, I also think that if, you, you know, if you're so busy and saying, and you're, and you're saying so much up on the bandstand, I don't know how you're supposed to actually get into a, a yogic state where it's going to be a spiritual thing. I mean, it, uh, it, it becomes a chops fest. Like I said, you wind up staring at the wall. And really, the other part of it is that, you know, I mean, I've done a few interviews with Garibaldi, and, you know, people would come up to him and say, man, you sounded great. You sounded just like, and if they said that to him, you sounded just like he'd want to slit his wrists. I mean, every single person from your generation prided themselves on their own individual sound. And so... Well, not too many, not too many people sound like Garibaldi. That's no, but what I, I mean, he, he may not be the best example, but like, yeah, well, no, because you say, you're good. Hey, hey, Dave, you sounded great. You sounded just like uh, Buddy Rich. No, Elvin Jones. No, who does Buddy, who does Garibaldi sound like? Well, you know, I think I hear you. You're right. But I think that when he was before Tower, you know, I mean, when he was playing with, uh, he would do a lot of just playing with Harvey Hughes and stuff like that. I just, the, the, the point was that. Like when I interviewed Bill Cosby, you know, you, you could put a blindfold on him uh, and and uh, not show him the liner notes, put on a record. He could tell you right away if it was Mickey Roker, Pete LaRocca, Tony Williams, uh, Alan Dawson. You know, I mean, the point is that everybody sounded different. And in today's modern melodic improvisation, I can't even tell who anybody is because they all sound the same, which means it's becoming a chop shop in academia. Well, yeah, academia is, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, 
I, 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 I don't really do private teaching very much, very rarely, but I mean, I've, I've said pretty much all I have to say about education with my, with my couple of books. But, I mean, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of kids doing jazz education, and I think that's good because, it, you know, it gives them an appreciation of the art form, and it, and it makes them more better-rounded, well-rounded people anyway, whether they make a career out of it or not, like 99.9% of them are not going to do because they're too smart to do that. But, but, uh, but uh, you know, I mean... Uh, you know, I, I, it wouldn't be bad if, 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 if the, some of some of these jazz academicians uh, would 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 really infuse their students with 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 you know the feeling of the blues first, have them start off playing blues and then move on to to standards and and whatnot, more modern fare. Because I mean, that's really the roots of it all is blues. If you can't play with a little bit of blues feeling, you know. Uh, you know, then, then I mean, to me, the music suffers. But then, you know, there's a lot of really great famous players that couldn't play the blues at all. Like, I mean, I saw, I saw this concert with Chick Corea and John McLaughlin, and uh, who was it? Was it uh, Vincent Herring or somebody? Maybe Roy Hargrove? I forget. But, but yeah, j- j- they, they played a blues, and God, it was so annoying. <laughs> well, tell, okay, this is so important, dude. I mean, this is the stuff that where the rubber meets the road for Jake Feinberg. How does an adherence to the blues and the spirituals allow jazz to breathe? And why is it so apparent that that adherence to the blues is nowhere to be found in modern jazz? I mean, how, how does that break up? How does it break up? The I wouldn't j- say no. I wouldn't say nowhere, but a lot of, a lot of the, a lot of the younger guys that are getting well known are, are playing cap zero blues in their, in their, in their, in their music. But you know, I mean, how the only, it's just, to me, it's just more soulful. I can't help it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have a little taste of that blues feeling. It just loses something to me. You know, I mean, I mean, it's, it's not that it isn't. It's not beautiful in its own way. There's a lot of this stuff with these weird, weird dark melodies and, and polychoral stuff, and and the chords go from one chord to the other. It's like you know, whatever. You know, there's a lot of these weird dark melodies and compositions going around and people i guess people are enjoying them i i, I try to uh, i mean i try to, to find I mean, it's not like it's not well played and it's not like it's unmusical but it's just not as soulful as, as some of the other stuff i mean and maybe, maybe it's just an old-fashioned thing maybe it's just a generational thing you know what some people think is soulful is not what uh, is not what the new generation feels you know well i think it's i think it could be that you know? No, I, we got a game on this program called Name That Tune. I'm going to put this tune in. I want Barry Finnerty to listen to it, and we'll come back and break it down. You got that? Yeah, that's from that Crusaders live video. Uh, to keep that same old feeling, right? That's what that is. Yeah, I mean, um, you, you can't get much more golf calls. 84, yeah. I mean, how did you... 
Here's the question I have for you before we move on to the Crusaders is, um, did you connect with peeps in like when they were in town and they, and that's why you wound up going to New York city in 73? Like, I mean, with Miroslav, Walter Booker, let him stay at his house, Gene Perla, all these cats, they got gigs being at Berkeley, uh, how did you wind up? Because I mean, you were at Berkeley and then you were in New York. I mean, how did how did how did you wind no, up? No, no, I, I, I went I went I went back to San Francisco for for a little over a year after Berkeley, uh, maybe two, maybe a two, maybe might have been two years. Um, and then I, I moved to New York at the beginning of '73. I was in Berkeley in '71, and my my dad was there, so I had a place to stay right off the bat. And uh, I, I I didn't really know that many people. I knew I knew. Uh, Alex Foster, who was my friend from San Francisco, he had he had, he had, he had moved there about six months earlier. And it turned out, when I got there, he had just got the gig with Chico Hamilton. So I, I auditioned. I got the gig. I was like two weeks after I got there. I had I had a gig. Oh, that's great. Fairly well known dance guy. So you know that was pretty cool. Um, I, but I I went with six hundred bucks and my guitars. That was it. You know. <clears throat> of course, six hundred bucks was more than it was now in 73 but, uh, but uh, you know like i mean but, yeah so you i mean when you weren't on the road with chico um were you down i mean you mean you mean, you mean 11 months out of the year <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah i mean what what were the low were, were the um you know was that east side scene still going on with slugs or those play would you be going down to places like that I was going out a little bit. I think I went to Slugs once. I didn't get down to the Lower East Side much, but there was a lot happening in the village where I was living, too. There was all kinds of places. <clears throat> there was a place called Boomers where a Cedar Walton Quartet would play almost every week, and that was like a lesson right there. That was incredible. Billy Higgins, Sam Jones, and George Coleman. Well, there's a couple of, yeah, there's a couple of, L, there's a couple of LPs that are released from Boomers. But, I mean, you, like at yeah, that time, there was nothing, there was so much experimental stuff going on. In fact, it, it was like this coming together of all, in my mind, it was like this um, really amazing time for the fusing of all music. So, I mean, did you have uh, your own working band at that time uh, in the village? And what, what was the instrumentation like? No, I actually, no, I did. When the first, the first uh, few, couple of years in New York, I, 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 didn't, I didn't really have my own gigs at all. You know, I hadn't, I hadn't really developed my, my writing at all, hardly. You know, I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't really start gigging with my own band until like maybe 77. What was that? Um, Could you talk about your first band that you had and what it, what would the configure was it and it was it all original tunes? Can you just give the audience an idea of your pretty much yeah, pretty much all original? I was doing kind of <clears throat> I was even doing some kind of fusion stuff. It was kind of influenced a little bit by uh, a little bit by Chick Corea, a little bit by Mahavishnu stuff at the time. You know, I was kind of doing trying to do some stuff like that. You know, um, uh, you know, I was so young, really. You know, I, I was just finding my way back then. You know, I was I was. I, you know, I still have some of those tunes, but I but I really wouldn't play them very much anymore. You know, there's a couple things I've, I've pulled out from the '70s, but you know, but I was just I was young. I was trying to find my way. I wasn't really, you know, I, I had <clears throat> around '77. I, I got I got with the Brecker Brothers, and I had that axe with had the synthesizer and organ built into it. It was really incredible. The organizer, and I did some gigs with that. I had a band called Space Age. Yeah, I actually had I actually had Narada, Michael Walden play drums on a couple of gigs. As well as uh, who else? Will Lee and uh, you know Mike Wolf played piano, I think. Wow. And, uh, who else? You know, just, just different people, you know, from that I could get at that time, <clears throat> you know. But uh, it took me a while to to uh, to get to the point where I could make a really good, consistent record, you know. You know, in fact, it took me thought it was about you know 
No, not quite, but you know. No, I mean, it, it, I, 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 did. I didn't do. I didn't do stuff for a long time because I just didn't have the financial uh, things. I mean, for a long, for years back in those days. I mean, if you wanted to do a project, you know, you had to go into a real studio and buy a bunch of rolls of two-inch tape that's one hundred and twenty-five bucks a piece and lug them around from studio to studio, and uh, and the studios themselves cost a couple hundred an hour. Now, now it's a, it's completely different. Now everybody's got you know professional recording capability on their desktop computer or laptop. You know. So it's a whole different ball game today, you know. But I mean, back then, you know, I, di- I didn't have the money, you know, uh, to to do it, you know. And uh, and uh, just in the last, uh, well, in the last you know fifteen years or so, I've been able to do a couple of projects because you know my my you know my family, uh, you know, their property uh, appreciated my mom. My mom was able to give me some dough to do it, and then she passed away. Now I now I can now I can pretty much do. I have to decide what, what, what how much music I can afford to play in any given year. No, I dig. I mean, you know, can you, no. I mean, I, I, I do want to talk. Spend a minute talking about, um, you know, just this, this idea of, of, uh, you know, like, I saw you post something where you said, you know, I just, I, maybe, you know, maybe a more, maybe was, the more correct thing was that you, you were thinking about moving out of the Bay Area. That's what it was. But it's just like there, there are just no, there's just not enough opportunity to get stuff out of your system there now, is there? There's just not too many. There's not enough gigs, and I'm and I'm not. I don't have the patience to 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 really, you know, like pound the pavements and make make dozens of phone calls to get a gig that pays a hundred dollars a guy, which is which is pretty much what you know. You're lucky to get a gig that pays a hundred dollars a guy, and then the price of an evening of jazz hasn't gone up since 1975. They were paying a hundred dollars a guy back then. It's ridiculous, you know. Yeah. So. I just, you know, I mean, I, there's a couple people that, that are, that are that, that club owners I'm fairly friendly with, and they'll hire me once in a while, but let me bring a band in once in a while. But it's, you know, once a month if I'm lucky, you know, really. It's it's, it's so, I mean, maybe if I, you know, the apartments are really cheap in Germany. And if I moved over there, you know, I have, I have a great band in Hamburg, and I could, I could play, probably I could do a lot more playing. You know, over over there, you know, when I walk on stage, they, they give me a round of applause and say, we're honored to have you. Over here, I thought I'm lucky to be, you know, I, I can't even get my phone calls returned by guys like Tim Jackson and Randall Quine over at SFGS. They treat me like I'm nobody. I mean, I, I, it's just depressing, you know. It's really depressing. I mean, and I've got good records to prove what kind of stuff I can do, but they're just, you know, they just don't even give me the time of day. So, I mean, I hate to vent on your radio show. You can, you can, no, you no, can, I mean, this is, the, I mean, it's it's, it's, part, it's, it's emblematic of, of all, uh, you know, the dissemination of, of how things are, I mean, just in general, uh, the fact that there has to be a bottom line um, yeah, uh, sure. component. I mean, if I, if I got a point, I could get an all-star band, band got, got type of thing together, maybe, if I want to put the DR. I could, I could, I could probably get somebody to, 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 to book it if I could get, say, Vinnie Caliuto or Steve Ferroni or Daryl Jones or, you know, uh, you know, some of these famous, famous guys. Or, you know, Will Lee. I, I mean, I know all those guys. But, you know, if you're going to put a band together like that, it's pretty much just for one project, you know, or one thing. You know, these guys are so busy, they're always all over the world doing different stuff. And so I have to ask myself, is it worth it for me to put together? It probably is. I mean, I should do it. I mean, but it's just a lot of work for not a lot of return, you know. So Before, we've been cooking here for about 50 minutes. Uh, before, I, uh, I, I'd love you to talk about how you wound up... Um, getting involved with the, uh, you know, I've interviewed everybody. Sticks won't talk to me for some reason, but I just like you to, I, I've interviewed everybody else in that band and uh, you know, the main, mm-hmm. the core cats, and they've all, 
I mean, Joe, Wilton, and Wayne, they've all left us now. And I just wanted – you talk about soul. Yeah, I know, right? Talk about soul. I mean, that I, I think that to me, I, just could you talk about your how you got involved with them and ultimately the legacy of the of the Crusaders? I mean, they were one of the funkiest, soulful jazz groups I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, I know. Well, you know, they. they uh, I was playing with Ray Barretto. You know, the, the, the I, there's an a, there's a great yeah. album with you on it, man. In '76 or something, you're you're playing guitar. There's a big band. Yeah, they did. They recorded one of my tunes, and uh, and uh, actually, that the, they 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 called in the Crusaders to produce that record because they wanted Ray to have a crossover uh, to, to hit. You know, so so that's how I met him. They had, I played on I played on some of that record, and, and they dug me, and then uh, and then I I I called them. Let's see, what happened? Not, not long after that, I guess they called me to play on that first Joe Sample Rainbow Seeker record. That was in 77. I see. And uh, I, play, I played a couple nice nice things on that. They liked it, although they, they, they erased some things also that I thought I, I thought I did really good. But anyway, but, but then I, I called, you know, I decided I wanted that gig, so I called them, you know, every couple weeks or a month for the next year until they finally... They finally, uh, they finally did call me out and hire me. They, and then, they, then they called me to play on Street Life, which was '79, and then, and then I worked with them for a while after that. But you know, so and uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was that was a real learning experience because they would bust me down and just have me, they, you know, they they would they would have me play rhythm guitar by myself, just you know, just play that part by yourself, and I'd have to do it, and they'd say, no, 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 <laughs> you know, I'm not getting. I'm not getting I wanted to be like hoom waka 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 hoom waka waka, and you know it was like, you know, they'd make you feel really rotten about yourself. But but then but actually it made me it made me bear down, and I became a much better rhythm player after they you know were busting my chops for like a couple of years. You know, but uh, hmm. you know it was it was a, it was a fun it was a fun gig. It had it had its good points for sure. You know, I mean it was a you know a, Joe Sample was one of a kind, and you know. And uh, they were super popular. I mean, the gigs were like gigantic gigs that they would do, you know, giant big festivals and ballparks. And, you know, Royal Albert Hall and, when you know, with B.B. King and the London Symphony Orchestra and all kinds of stuff, you know, that we did. It was a lot. It was, it was quite fun. First class plane rides, you know, yeah, for no. a while, for a while. For yeah. the first couple of years, it was first class. Then, then the band, then the three main guys would fly first class with their manager. The band went business class. Then, then, then they would fly first class, and the, and the rest of the band would take a separate plane and coach. You know, so, yeah. it was a gradual process of demotion in a way. Wow, that's <laughs> so that is so interesting. I should, so I shouldn't uh, I shouldn't really be bitch about it because it was no, great. no, I mean, but no, but it does. You know, you, you know how you make a you know how you make a jazz musician complain, right? No. Give him a gig. <laughs> Did you did you ever um, just just for the obviously I'm doing a people's history of music here and um, did you um, did you actually quote unquote, I mean I know you were on, I know you were on the did you play gigs with Return to Forever? I never did do a gig with them. I, I, I sat in at sort of an audition at one time and uh, when when Bill Connors and me ended up auditioning on the same night, which was a total disaster, and I was kind of blown away by the. He, 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 that was when he got the gig with Return to Forever. We, 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 uh, we both sat in at Keystone Corner in San Francisco, that old club that Todd Barkin used to run. Sure. And, uh, and it turned out he had brought, brought his own rooting section. And, and, uh, and I was playing my big Johnny Smith jazz box, and he had brought a Les Paul, and he was rocking out. And it was like, I, was, I, I wish I wanted to crawl under a rock after that one, you know. 
but uh, but you know, I was there. I tried. No, absolutely, and 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 you uh, you obviously knew Flora and Ayerto. You got Mike Wolf that gig. So I mean, it, it, to me, it's like that was that was that was yeah after, after like a, couple, a year after a year or two after that. You know, but yeah, I did. yeah. Well, I, I can just, just talk to Ayerto a couple months ago. Yeah, no, he's I mean, yeah, he's, I mean, I, I, I've tried to get a hold of him. I did a, I got to talk to him again. I just, um, you know, Barry, it's, it's funny because I see the Ray Barreto records and I see uh, Chico. Did you cut some albums with Chico on Blue Note? Uh, not on Blue Note. I, we had one record that came out uh, when, when we, you know, right after I joined the band, we went and played Montreux Festival in Japan in, in, in Switzerland and that. Uh, and there was a record came out. It was like half an hour of this tune, of my tune. It was, it was, but it was three people. It was Little Milton, um, was a Little Walter. There was three people. It was, it was, it was, he was on Stax Records at that time. So it was these two, two blues guys, and uh, and, and Chico. And, and that, uh, is that a, is that is that on YouTube or is it? Did it come out on an album? Hey, it was on a it was on a vinyl record. Oh my gosh! It was. Uh, it was three stacks artists anyway, and and, and then it was this tune of mine. It was a, one of the first tunes I ever wrote that Chico recorded, and it was on that record. Uh, you know, just like a twenty-five minute version or something. Took the whole side of the record up, and uh, and that was my initiation to the music business. Cause I, I I never got a dime of royalty money for it. <laughs> well, that is just. I'm going to look that up right now. Um, Barry Finnerty, I had a ball, man. We'll, we'll uh, let's uh, let's plan on picking this up uh, down the road in the near future. We got more to do. Yeah, yeah, I know. It, 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 an hour went by like 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 nothing right there. Well, thanks. It was nice to talk to you, Jake. I appreciate I appreciate any chance to to talk to talk about all my uh, all my shit and all, all my stuff on, on the radio. Hey, it, 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 it's, it's going to be streaming on that on that on that internet station. We we we've been we've been world, we we we've been streaming the whole time. This is full live right now. Oh, we're live. All right. Yeah. Well. Thanks, thanks for listening, world. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, we'll see you soon, B. Thank you, bud. Yeah, thanks, Jake. Later, Take dude. Bye-bye. Barry Finnerty, legendary guitar player. He's been all around this world, and we're going to be back with Patricia Collins right after this. Thank you. 